forward and bent over Bill, who still lay motionless on the ground. I turned back to attend to the race. I'd been left in front and I ought to stay there. At the side of the course, a black-suited, white-sashed first-aid man was running towards and past me. He'd been standing at the fence I was now approaching and was on his way to help Bill. I booted my horse into the next three fences, but my heart was no longer in it. And when I emerged as the winner into the full view of the crowded stands, the mixed gasp and groan which greeted me seemed an apt enough welcome. I passed the winning post, patted my mount's neck, and looked at the stands. Most heads were still turned towards the last fence, searching in the impenetrable mist for Admiral, the odds-on certainty who had lost his first race for two years. Even the pleasant middle-aged woman whose horse I was riding met me with the question, What happened to Admiral? He fell, I said. Oh, <laughs> how lucky, <laughs> said Mrs. Mervyn. She took hold of the bridle and led her horse into the winner's unsaddling enclosure. I slid off and undid the girth buckles with fingers clumsy from shock. She patted the horse and chattered on about how delighted she was to have won and how unexpected it was and how fortunate that Admiral had tripped up for a change. Though a great pity in another way, of course. I nodded and smiled at her and didn't answer, because what I would have said would have been savage and unkind. Let her enjoy her win, I thought. They come seldom enough. And Bill might, after all, be all right. I tugged the saddle off the horse, and leaving a beaming Mrs. Mervyn receiving congratulations from all around, pressed through the crowd into the weighing room. I sat on the scales, was passed as correct, walked into the changing room, and put my gear down on the bench. Clem, the racecourse valet who looked after my stuff, came over. He was a small, elderly man, very spry and tidy, with a weather-beaten face and wrists whose tendons stood out like tight-strung cords. He picked up my saddle and ran his hand caressingly over the leather. It was a habit he had grown into, I imagined, from long years of caring for fine-grained skins. He stroked a saddle as another man would a pretty girl's cheek, savouring the suppleness, the bloom. "'Well done, sir,' he said. But he didn't look overjoyed. I didn't want to be congratulated. I said, Admiral should have won. Did he fall? asked Clem. Yes, I said. I couldn't understand it, thinking about it. Is Major Davidson all right, sir? asked Clem. He valeted Bill, too, and I knew looked upon him as a sort of minor god. I don't know, I said. But the hard saddle tree had hit him plumb in the belly with the weight of a big horse falling at thirty miles an hour behind it. What chances he got, poor beggar, I thought. I shrugged my arms into my sheepskin coat and went along to the first aid room. Bill's wife, Scylla, was standing outside the door there, pale and shaking and doing her best not to be frightened. Her small, neat figure was dressed gaily in scarlet, and a mink hat sat provocatively on top of her cloudy, dark curls. They were clothes for success, not sorrow. Oh, Helen, she said with relief when she saw me. The doctor's looking at him and asked me to wait here. What do you think? Is he bad? She was pleading, and I hadn't much comfort to give her. I put my arm round her shoulders. She asked me if I'd seen Bill fall.
and I told her he'd dived onto his head and might be slightly concussed. The door opened, and a tall, slim, well-groomed man came out. The doctor. Are you Mrs. Davidson? He said to Silla. She nodded. I'm afraid your husband will have to go along to the hospital, he said. It wouldn't be sensible to send him home without an X-ray. He smiled reassuringly, and I felt some of the tension go out of Silla's body. Can I go in and see him? She said. The doctor hesitated. Yes, he said finally. But he's almost unconscious. He had a bit of a bang on the head. Don't try to wake him. When I started to follow Scylla into the first aid room, the doctor put his hand on my arm to stop me. You're Mr. York, aren't you? He asked. He'd give me a regulation check after an easy fall I'd had the day before. Yes. Do you know these people well? Yes, I live with them most of the time. The doctor closed his lips tight, thinking. Then he said, oh, It's not good. The concussion's not much, but he's bleeding internally, possibly from a ruptured spleen. I've telephoned the hospital to take him in as an emergency case, as soon as we can get him there. As he spoke, one of the racecourse ambulances backed up towards us. The men jumped out, opened the rear doors, took out a big stretcher and carried it into the first aid room. The doctor went in after them. Soon they all reappeared with Bill on the stretcher. Scylla followed, the anxiety plain on her face, deep and well-founded. Bill's firm, brown, humorous face, now lolled flaccid, bluish-white, and covered with fine beads of sweat. He was gasping slightly through his open mouth, and his hands were restlessly pulling at the blanket which covered him. He was still wearing his green and red checked racing colours, the most ominous sign of all. Scylla said to me, I'm going with him in the ambulance. Can you come? I, I've arrived in the last race, I said. I'll come along to the hospital straight after that. Don't worry, he'll be all right. But I didn't believe it, and nor did she. After they'd gone, I walked along beside the weighing room building and down through the car park until I came to the bank of the river. Swollen from recently melted snow, the Thames was flowing fast, sandy brown and grey with froths of white. The water swirled out of the mist a hundred yards to my right, churned round the bend where I stood, and disappeared again into the fog. Troubled, confused, not seeing a clear course ahead. Just like me. For there was something wrong about Bill's accident. Back in Bulawayo, where I got my schooling, the mathematics master spent hours, too many, I thought, in my youth, teaching us to draw correct inferences from a few known facts. But deduction was his hobby, as well as his job, and occasionally we'd been able to sidetrack him from problems of geometry or algebra to those of Sherlock Holmes. He produced class after class of boys keenly observant of well-worn toe caps on charwomen and vicars, and calluses on the fingertips of harpists, and the mathematics standard of the school was exceptionally high. Now, thousands of miles and seven years away from the sun-baked schoolroom, standing in an English fog and growing very cold, I remembered my master and took out my facts and had a look at them. Known facts. Admiral, the superb jumper, had fallen abruptly in full flight for no apparent reason. The racecourse attendant had walked across the course behind the fence as Bill and I rode towards it. But this was not at all unusual. 
And as I'd cleared the fence, and while I was looking down at Bill, somewhere on the edge of my vision there had been a dull, damp gleam from something grey and metallic. I thought about these things for a long time. The inference was there, all right, but unbelievable. I had to find out if it was the correct one. I went back into the weighing room to collect my kit and weigh out for the last race. But as I packed the flat lead pieces into my weight cloth to bring my weight up to that set by the handicapper, the loudspeakers were turned on, and it was announced that owing to the thickening fog, the last race had been abandoned. There was a rush then in the changing room, and the tea and fruitcake disappeared at a quickened tempo. It was a long time since breakfast, and I stuffed a couple of beef sandwiches into my mouth while I changed. I arranged with Clem for my kit to go to Plumpton, where I was due to ride four days later, and set off on an uninviting walk. I wanted to have a close look at the place where Bill had fallen. It's a long way on foot from the stands to the far end of Maidenhead Racecourse, and by the time I got there, my shoes, socks and trouser legs were wet through from the long, sodden grass. It was very cold, very foggy. There was no one about. I reached the fence, the harmless, softish, easy-to-jump fence, made of black birch twigs standing upright. Three feet thick at the bottom, slanting to half that size at the top, four feet six inches tall, about ten yards wide. Ordinary. Easy. I looked carefully along the landing side of the fence. There was nothing unusual. Round I went to the take-off side. Nothing. I poked around the wing which guides the horses into the fence, the one on the inside of the course, the side Bill had been when he fell. Still nothing. It was down underneath the wing on the outside of the course that I found what I was looking for. There it lay in the long grass, half hidden, beaded with drops of mist.